There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Daisy is Insatiable. I'm Daisy Buchanan, the author of Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. Together, we're going to be exploring love, lust, life, appetite, identity and everything that makes sex thrilling, fascinating and bewildering. My first guest is the author and broadcaster Dolly Alderton. Dolly explores themes of love and sex in her gorgeous first novel, Ghosts picking up on some of the themes and ideas explored in her blockbuster memoir, Everything I Know About Love. As an advice columnist for the Sunday Times, Dolly advises the nation on matters of intimacy. Together, we talked about sex and power, sex and exploration, and how we have both grown up and navigated a path through our 20s by gaining a greater understanding of our public and sexual selves. Something I'm really curious about in terms of the the letters you get and the people asking mm. for advice about relationships is, do you think people know the difference between sex and love? And do you think there is a difference? And what are the best and worst ways in which we get those two things confused? That is such a good question. The same things come up over and over again in um, the letters that I get about relationships and about sex. Sex-wise... It's often women freaking out that they're not having enough sex with their partner. I think we're so programmed from such a young age as women to see sex and people and men fancying us as being the kind of ticket to adulthood and adventure and sophistication and experience. Um, And it's kind of the thing that it's like one of the main things I think that defines the difference between childhood and adulthood. I think women really, really panic when sex is absent from a relationship sometimes because I think they're worried about you know a lack of connection but a lot of the time I think it's more about yeah like a a lack of adulthood in their life a lack of experience a lack of excitement I think something that I find interesting about and this is from my own experience and I see it a lot in the letters is I often feel people are writing about sex when really what they're writing about is needing attention There is a case to be made that when we're kind of desperate for physical affection, when we're desperate for physical affirmation, really what we're doing is is finding a grown up way of replacing the way that love was expressed to us when we were kids. So basically, (laughs) not to be too on on the nose about this, um, 
and to crib Freud too much. Basically, I think when women write to me, often single women, and they're craving sex or they're panicked about not having sex, I really think what they often need is reassurance or a parent. But then, you know, that begs the question as well, I guess, how much of sex itself is is non-sexual? I'm not entirely sure we can fully separate physical intimacy from sex because so much of it is touching and kissing and hugging and there is desire there but there is also the desire for the creation of intimacy as much as there is desire for Mm. orgasm I also do think that there are lots of different types of sex and I think that not everyone is built for them and I think that not everyone craves them and I think that it takes a particular chemistry with two individuals who both want a particular type of sex but I do think there is as you said sex is it's a creative act but I do think you can have a creative act without having deep connection. I do know that it's possible to have sex where it is, you know, I think in my memoir I described it as like supermarket sweep for an orgasm. <laughs> you just sort of run in and, and grab as many as you can. I think that that can be a really enjoyable experience for both parties, as long as it's obviously consensual and considerate, if not deeply, deeply connected. I think that, well, I know that you can have very, very good sex like that but I think it takes a very particular type of person to have that kind of sex I talk about this a lot but I listened to Tracy Emmons Desert Island Discs when I was quite young and I remember being like yep that's it she said it that's my manifesto it was like in my early 20s where she said some of the happiest times of her life were when she was really promiscuous as a teenage girl because she was living in Margate in this quite sheltered British seaside town and she she felt like she was travelling and she called it the springboard effect. She was like every new person, every new lover was like a new country and it was a way for her to see the world <laughs> while being kind of very sheltered and, and having to stay put. And I definitely think that some people have that appetite for human travel. And also... Tracy Emin had a really horrible time when she was having sex, uh, had having a sexual life as a young woman. She was sexually abused. She had boys bullied her. She had a horrible time. One didn't cancel out the other. And I think that's what you feel in Insatiable. And that's certainly what I've always tried to write about with female characters who are sexually free. I really do think that is being a woman and being alive. And I think this is something that is a very old idea but I was thinking in in literature and in life when men want to go on adventures it's easier for them broadly speaking and to be very very general about it but you know that is one of the few ways for women to travel and the notion that women can go anywhere they like and be anyone they want that really is still a relatively new one and something that we're still kind of wrestling with and examining in art and culture it's one of the few spaces where as a woman you feel like you do when you're a young woman have a little bit of power but that power kind of shifts all the time and so many people are so quick to give you the opportunities to give it away yeah power is that is a real particularly I think when you're looking at teenage girls and young women having sex I think power is, is such a good point I mean I still can't believe that when you have sex with someone you get to see this side of them that is so vulnerable that no one else gets to see I mean, I just felt like presidential levels of power when I first started (laughs) having sex with her. I couldn't believe that I got that access, that you get to see someone's bedroom, you get to see them naked, you get to see 
the hair on their body, yeah. the freckles on their back, the face, the faces that they make, the noises that they make. You get to know the things that they like. You get to see the way that they move. You get to bear witness to their fantasies. It's like, I couldn't believe that I got to do that. And I, it's kind of dark. I like, I couldn't believe I got to gather that information on a man and it felt really good. You know, I think it does feel like if you're a young woman who felt at all like you were humiliated or disempowered, which is sadly so many teenage girls, it feels a bit like payback time. I think when you first start having sex. I mean, I definitely remember, and I think as well, it's because I was raised in the, the Catholic faith. It's very sort of strict. There was a real sense of like absolutism. I mean, you know, I think practicing Catholics would say, no, 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 you're supposed to repent of, of your sins and you'll be fine. But that yeah, this idea that you are either angelic or fallen and thinking, well, I might mm. as well be really fallen. Yeah. And also I think that women, you know, post not well def, not even boomers like probably our generation and the generation before us I don't know about you but when I was having a lot of sex with a lot of people I definitely felt like I was harboring some sort of agenda on behalf of my ancestors I like I'm very aware every time that I have this casual sexual encounter that there have been so many women before me for whom that would have like literally ruined their life that would have had them booted out of their family home or sent on the streets or, you know, put into a place of shame and isolation. And I think that there is an energy of, with modern women that, like, I feel really powered up by that. And I feel like <laughs> fucking on behalf of all of them, really. <laughs> whenever, whenever, like, whenever a woman of a 21st century woman is enjoying sex in a, in a, in a, you know, a carefree way outside of, marriage or relationships like in a way I suppose that that is an act of like political payback I don't know I definitely feel that it's not something I ever forget I feel very politicized about masturbation because I think that female pleasure has just been for hundreds and thousands of years not even something worth considering a sort of like incidental if it happens it happens and still that old kind of notion you know whenever we talk about heterosexual heteronormative sex and you know like oh yeah big penis eh your wife will be pleased and that's so like <laughs> on so many levels it's such a weird obviously it's not something that many people actually say out loud but this sort of no the fact that what has sort of passed into our basic legend even in school and in sex education men's orgasms were just a given and women's yeah. were a bit of a kind of yeah, the implication was always that it's supposed to be fun, but it's all like shrouded in mystery. And it's like, oh, you know, you'll just get a feeling and you'll know. And that doesn't really help anyone, does it? Yeah, but get a feeling. That is what they, how they articulate it, isn't it? It's such a sort a of warm, a... a warm feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot that is so much the parlance of sex education when they're talking about female pleasure. But it's so ejaculation is talked about in such specifics. But I do remember it strange man on Twitter saying something along the lines of, well, you know, I feel terrible now. Like, what am I supposed to do? This is, you know, women wanking, getting themselves off. <laughs> Where do I fit into all this? <laughs> and I think that's something, if we are much more open about the pleasure we can find by ourselves, that we are much less likely to kind of put up with anything that's sort of that's mediocre or not right. Or as you say, that... 
that we can, to a point, physically give ourselves some of what we need and what we're searching for, and that can kind of distill it a little Mm. bit better. I think male masturbation is something that doesn't shock us. It's accepted as something that is done. But, you know, they don't get what we... It's not like, ooh, buy yourself this magic sex toy that costs £90 and put on this special music and this is you time, this is self-love, this is self-care. It's got to be a middle ground, right? I think guys could probably do with a bit of that to make them feel as though that's something that can be done with a bit of love and a bit of dignity. Self-abuse is not the most cheerful or friendly of euphemisms no and and also I agree with you I like I feel really sorry for heterosexual men in terms of uh their understanding of female sexuality and of female pleasure because as you said it's a mystery to most well not most women it's a mystery to a lot of women like I def I think every woman you know knows someone who or has a close friend who like doesn't masturbate or has never made herself come but I, I know like a couple of women like that. Yeah, our sexuality and also just like our sex, like our actual genitals, like I, I think are, are still like for a lot of women, something that's quite confusing. Like, as we know, most women are still using like the wrong words to describe their anatomy. Yeah, I, th- I, I think it's a mess. I think I think we're in a mess. I think that it must be like that, that man, that reply guy sending that, that, you know, twatty message. I think... I understand I understand why it would be scary because there's no specific proof really I suppose of a woman having an orgasm women are so conditioned to make the right noises and um say the right things and uh you know cherish and protect the male sexual ego that it's quite like as we know that this is something that like women don't do authentically a lot of the time what we also know is that like most women don't come from penetrative sex and yet the only time you see women coming definitely in films most of the time certainly in porn is penetrative sex so of course that's really scary for men because it's just all a big lie like we're all lying to each other all the time I think yeah I totally get why that would feel like quite frightening for a man and it's why actually I really really respect Holly Bourne who writes brilliant books and she writes brilliantly about sex I interviewed her about her latest novel pretending and she has a rule that she doesn't let women have non-clitoral orgasms in any of her books because she feels like women who just have penetrative orgasms are already so overrepresented (laughs) and they represent such a minority of 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 the female experience that it just perpetuates a lie a lie that's damaging for women because they feel like they're not performing properly in bed and a lie that's damaging for men because they think they're doing the right thing i am a huge huge fan of holly's and i think i had seen her talking about that possibly with you but that definitely is familiar and here dolly is where we can talk about privilege um (laughs) i've never said this out loud before i do orgasm from penetrative sex (laughs) and congratulations um And as such, definitely when I was writing sex scenes, I am, you know, ashamed to admit it didn't really occur to me that Violet's path to orgasm needed to be markedly different from my own. And you know, and I think that is the, but that's what, what privilege is, isn't it? Privilege is something that you don't really fully understand how you're benefiting from it. Privilege is such an interesting thing to think about in the context of this. Is it a privilege? Um, I suppose it is. I didn't earn it. 
<laughs> would we say on the privilege on the privilege scale where does a private education and a g-spot a functioning g-spot where do they sit <laughs> um no you're yeah you're right it is a privilege because I suppose it makes things simpler and easier doesn't it and I suppose perhaps this is the real difference maybe between a sex on a page and porn something that has been you know coming up a little bit and there's there's porn porn we all love Bridgerton we all love normal people <laughs> and sex on the screen you know I feel like we're seeing more of that and that's a good and, and wonderful thing um especially when it is shot as beautifully as, as, as it is in those um tv programs but mm. it's interesting I think that sex on a page still seems more shocking you know when it really is just words that it's not yeah we're not watching that or we, you know we're not reading along with our mums there are no actual people involved it's just you know one person's imagination you and I think you can be one can be much more graphic when mm. writing I think when I'm reading sex I like to lose myself in the moment and I'm not getting too sort of hung up on the technicalities of oh but hold on that leg was over there a minute ago unless it's really mm. really jarring mm. yeah and also like I'm sure as you know once you've written sex in a novel Fuck me. Anytime I read a good passage of sex in a book now, I just, I know how much work's gone into it. I was, you know, writing a thousand words a day when I wrote my novel. If I had a paragraph of sex to write, I would put aside two and a half days. It's really difficult. It's really, really difficult. And I think, yeah, I just have so much. I just know now. It's like after I did two restaurant reviews for Sunday Times and had no idea how difficult it was to write about food. So now if I read a sex scene that just is like, yeah, describes something that I can feel, but it feels like it's with a with a kind of fresh gaze or, or described in a really satisfying, truthful or inventive way, and and as you said you can you it's sensual but it's also clear you can you can see it and feel it um so but it's so it's not you know nebulous but you can also feel the atmosphere of it it's the same with when I like read someone describe a bite of cheesecake in in a way that makes me taste it and see it it's it's just like now when my eyes dart through those things because when that's well written you do you can just like swim through it I realize for me to have had that ease of experience as a re as a reader, it would have taken so much brain power from the writer. Um, I don't want to give away any spoilers. I'm pretty sure everyone listening will have read Ghost by now, but the very climactic sex scene, that there are so many emotions and so much is being expressed and that it's honestly unlike anything I've read in any novel. And it's sort of, oh. you know, there are so many many things going on between those people and it's such an unexpected but right way for them to communicate I so appreciate you saying that because it's the thing that I think has been most divisive about the book I see much more hatred for that scene than I do love for it and actually like as you know we've been like friends for however long 10 years now you know how like crippled I am by keeping people happy and what they think of me that is the one thing in the book that I really don't care if people like it or not because I just know it was absolutely absolutely right for those two characters and I, as I said there are so many things I worry about that I didn't get it right but that is one part that I just don't regret like I'm really glad I committed to that something 
you said there in a more abstract way made me think of what you were talking about with regards to Tracy Emin and the way that sex allows a young woman to travel. And I was thinking that we have both, as you say, written about our lives and, you know, you wrote a hugely... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Successful and beloved um, dating column and a an enormous um, best-selling you know globally renowned memoir about love and love in all of its different forms including romantic love and definitely when I started my writing career a sort of dating columnist or I don't know that seemed like a, a plausible job for a young ambitious woman who wanted to write that in terms of how we might be allowed an audience, how we might be allowed to kind of find readers and employment and any kind of profile and a little bit of power, giving that away about ourselves was a sort of, was a route to something. And I know that as many, many people have observed, it's very telling that women in the media, there's more pressure on us to kind of give ourselves away and tell their stories about ourselves. If you're a woman doing anything at all in public, you're much more likely to get sort of random criticism yeah. and much worse yeah. from strangers. But then I think where I got very lucky unexpectedly was maybe instinctively knowing enough and also I think with the people I work with 
and that we can give away so much about ourselves without giving away too much. And I don't think readers necessarily know, of course they don't know where professional and personal boundaries lie. Did you always feel able to protect yourself and disclose what you needed to disclose? Or did you ever feel that you had to kind of fight yourself as to how much of that world you wanted to reveal? I want to turn that question on you as well after I answer it because it's something I think about a lot and it's such a complicated thing to talk about Daisy because now the fact that I wrote those things that I wrote I am mortified by a lot of it and I yeah feel very embarrassed about it I don't feel shame and I don't feel regret but it feels just very different to who I am now and what I have to just remind myself of is that's because I'm I am very different now and if I feel any sort of shame about that 26 year old writing about you know going to the clap clinic or my latest bikini wax disaster or my latest uh, you know disastrous day or one night stand or whatever I have to be you know that Joan Didion essay about keeping in touch the importance of writing a notebook because it's important to keep in touch with your old self Mm. I try to keep in touch with my old self with particularly my younger creative self because anytime I feel shame about those columns, I hear that 26 year old talking back to me being like, don't shame me because you may, (laughs) you may not want to do this now, but this is what I want to do right now. And I think that's what I have to like, just keep in mind all the time. It would just be so easy to suddenly say, oh, I used my personal life against my will to gain career capital. I was manipulated. I, you know, it's just not true. I, I wanted I wanted, I I thought these experiences were funny and interesting. I wanted to share them in an entertaining and truthful way. I didn't mind that people knew all my business. I think I probably thought it was quite cool. (laughs) Um, I think there's definitely also something that I have to be aware of is because like most teenagers, like I didn't have a love life and I didn't have like a sexual life for a long time. And I was kind of made to feel like pretty repulsive through most of my young adult life. I think there was definitely a period when I was like first started having sex and writing about it where I just really wanted everyone to know that I had sex. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Oh. It was definitely a teenage hangover that I I think I've only recently shaken off of being like, it's all right, darling. They know now. <laughs> <laughs> they know. You don't have to write about it every week. People know that some people want to sleep with you and that you get drunk and, and you know, smoke cigarettes. You don't need to... <laughs> keep telling everyone (laughs) oh love so how how do you how do you feel about it do you feel any kind of sense of of regret yeah same um yeah (laughs) and you know I do want to say before I forget is that I think the fact that we are having this conversation now and you know the work you've done and the books you've written and the hundreds and thousands of millions of people who really do love and adore your writing it's a testament to the fact that you are, you know, you're a born storyteller and you write what is funny and you write what is beautiful and you are, you are brilliant and you're resourceful. And if something funny or moving happens to you, you know, you want to share that. And I think there's a real, real generosity that's in really your writing and that's love, what I that's adore about beautifully it. beautifully put. And I take that as a huge compliment. Thank you. At Bliss... I was 23. I had to write every day and I had to write for 
this teenage audience and they were smart and wise and you know they take nothing no sort of no condescension from me it really forced me to write every single day and write for an audience they had no money and so the joy of being an intern was that you were like writing a good third of the magazine from day one if I'd gone and been somewhere very grand and glossy like Vogue you know no one would have talked to me and I would have been in the cupboard for six months putting things in envelopes and then when I wanted to go off and do something else. At the time, it was a different time, 2011-ish, I was really very late to feminism. And I really felt it, you know, strongly in my heart as someone who's writing for teenage girls. I cared Mm. deeply. I grew up, no one fancied me. I vividly remember classroom discussions about how very, very, very unfanciable I was and the amount of money um, people would have to be paid in order to engage in sexual congress with me. And so, yeah, oh, I had Daisy, that. I've those. Uh, I've got those conversations in my head as well and I have to say they are the ones you remember on your deathbed, aren't they? So fucking sad. Anyway, Um, really, really, really sad. So, yeah, I had this idea that through writing and jokes, I could sort of, I just wanted to sort of, you know, advertise myself as a sexy girl about town. And after doing that for about three or four columns, I was like, yeah, no, this is not, this is a bit, a bit jarring. What is actually Mm. much more important is to write about these things in a funny and generous and entertaining way. And... Obviously, we all know, you know, Nora's adage about the banana skin, own your joke, and you have to have a sense of humour about yourself. And I think that is that it's there's a really fine line between being horribly, horribly, horribly self-deprecating and being Mm. confident enough about your mistakes to laugh at them and to invite people Mm. to laugh at them. And I suppose the glorious thing about being a reader is, you know, you are... Never alone. I think that in um, Catelyn Moran's How to Be a Woman, she writes about that in the library, about just feeling like a freak and then realising in the playground, you know, she was bullied and harassed and it was just awful and she felt unknown and unknowable, but then found a kindred spirit in David Niven when she read The Moon's a Balloon. Mm, and that's oh, the... I love you, that book. Nothing is so gross or exposing mm. or sexual or violent or terrible that it cannot be written about um yeah. i'm going to paraphrase this horribly in um one of ellen montgomery's emily of new moon book she says that something along the lines of the the feeling of something nothing is ever so awful that it's not a little easier to bear when written down and the heartbreaking mm. devastating flip side of that is that there are some things so beautiful that they lose some of that when they're put mm. into words. I mean, I think that's what I'm really, really horribly envious of, um, of painters, of visual artists, of dancers, that they've got mm. a genius I will never know. I have mm. nothing but words. <laughs> yeah, and also there's something, um, I, I reference this a lot in interviews, but just because it's so useful and I'm sure you know about it, there's this great interview with Ira Glass that you can watch on YouTube where he's giving advice to young creators and he says the thing that's frustrating when you first start creating is you know you have great taste and you've examined what good art is. You've poured over it forensically. You've taken it apart, looked at each piece and said, right, I'm going to take all the best bits of all these things and I'm going to replicate it in my own version. And you do, you work as hard as you can 
you spend as much time and energy and money on it as you can you you have a relationship with this thing and then you make it and you look at it and you see the gap between your favorite things and what it is and you think how the fuck has this happened I, I filled my head with all the right stuff I did everything I could. Why is the thing I've made so different in quality to that other stuff? And he basically said, the act of being an artist is the rest of your life, project by project, closing that gap. And I couldn't agree more. That's that's what the life of an artist is, I think, or a writer, yeah. That is a much more beautiful and moving examination of my favourite Simpsons joke of Homer Simpson, <laughs> looking at this beautiful barbecue. So that's a fun looking barbecue. Then it pans out and he realises he's holding the box and he's looking at this sort of concrete disaster with this random parasol pranging out of it. <laughs> Why doesn't mine look like that? <laughs> that's my writing yeah. life. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm like, every every book that I write is like those, you know, those sort of Pinterest cakes versus reality. I've <laughs> oh, got every night we lop, put to a ourselves. A lopsided mess. Where it's like block capitals bold. <laughs> Think of something better here. And that's gone on the cake <laughs> in the writing. Um, exactly. To bring us back to sex, I'm curious. You might not have an answer to this. I'm putting you in the spot. Mm. Um, can you think offhand of the best and worst sex tips you have ever been given or given to someone else or just heard in passing? I mean, like everything from the years 2000 to 2006, probably, that I heard was not was shite about sex. Basically, like just from my little friends at school, like that, that that's how you learn about sex, isn't it? Like <laughs> you have like little weirdo virgin mates. Just all Jay in the training. Do you put the balls in as well? Sometimes it depends. Yeah, do you put the balls in as well? That line from the Inbetweeners, I was like, that was my life, basically, (laughs) for six years. All we did was talk about sex and speculate on sex and exaggerate our own sexual, you know, understanding and experience. And none of us had, like, none of us had any sexual experience. And yet we would, it was like my whole life was a Reddit thread, basically, for six years. Yeah, in terms of, like, best sex tip that I've ever had... (laughs) Such a good question, Daisy. I definitely remember sleeping with someone when I was 18. I had a relationship, like a a short relationship with someone when I was 18 and he was much older than me. And he was like my sort of, he sort of taught me how to have sex, I think, really, when I look back on it. In in like an amazing way, I think I just like learned more about intimacy and pleasure and connection with him than I did well obviously because he was you know like in his 30s and had been in lots of long-term relationships and I was you know just sleeping with other (laughs) other little weirdos who were 18 who'd also spent the last six years asking do you put the balls in (laughs) um (laughs) so suddenly a very different experience when I was sleeping with this older guy I remember him but basically explaining this really basic thing about sex that I hadn't really clocked yet I think because I hadn't been in love and I think so much about sex to me had been about like yeah this kind of passport to adulthood and about bravado and about proving you know about freedom and resilience and rebellion and proving that I was desirable and sort of being Samantha Jones and having that supermarket sweep sort of sex I remember him being like you know sex is like a conversation between two people who really want to listen to each other like it's two people expressing how they care about each other and how they feel about each other and then I remember I was like 
Oh, <laughs> oh, is it? I had I had never thought of it like that. I thought it was two individuals sort of rushing together and <laughs> sort of banging together in a, <laughs> in a glorious, <laughs> in a glorious large bang, loud bang. That's what I thought sex was. I thought oh. it was just like two people going into an experience to get what they wanted, and yeah. I hadn't really thought of the communion of it. So I, I yeah, as I said, it's like a very basic thing about sex that I'm really glad someone pointed out to me someone lovingly pointed it out to me what I love about that as well is it's sort of a there are no tips really there's no one size fits all hey thing you can do in sex where you're like surefire winner there because I yeah that sort of treating it like the olympics and you know when we're talking about a supermarket sweep and I do remember that sort of being single and feeling that weird like lust for sort of stuff I had I suppose and sort of thinking, you know, when I'm in a glamorous, sexy adult lady and can do what I like, I will, I'll go out and I'll buy 20 pairs of shoes at a time. And that's what yeah. sophisticated ladies yeah, do. Yeah. Not that's yeah. what people with terrible bin shopping disorders do. <laughs> and I think that yeah. is it. But I think the sort of this idea of, I believed for a long time that quantity had a quality all of its own. And um, I'm not sure. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with you and actually I something I've realized as I've got older is there's just no such thing as someone who's good in bed and someone who's bad in bed there are only dynamics that are created together that are either compatible or incompatible it it, though truly and unless you have like a really sort of avant-garde technique uh, I just (laughs) think I just think that there's no that all you all you can be like someone who's who's good in bed is someone who is compatible with your desires and who is like generous I suppose but but like two people who are adaptable to each other and who are open that's what's being for me that's what I think being good in bed is like that's how you be good in bed it's just like being open to all ideas and also very clear with your own boundaries and able to communicate clearly I think that's like that's all being good in bed is really um, what are your 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 best and worst tips, Stacey? I'm <laughs> desperate to know. Well, I suppose going from what you said, I just read a Fran Leibovitz line that I really loved, which, and I hope I'm going to get it right, the listening is not the opposite of talking. The opposite of talking is waiting. And this notion, mm. I suppose, I think that sort of applies to sex, that we need to remember that communication is about responding. It's not just waiting until it's your go. Yes, it's um, not turn-taking. Yeah, exactly. The worst sex tip, which I tried when I was a teenager, <laughs> my then-boyfriend, in I'm sure it was Cosmopolitan, surprise your lover by taking a mouthful of his favourite tipple before going down on him. It, very heteronormative in the early aughts. It was oh a him. Oh, my God. Yeah, boys do not like it when you touch their penis with vodka it really hurts (laughs) that is the most insane tip do you know what I think it is it's like there was definitely a woman's magazine trend of like let's boil down what men like men like sex and they also like food and they also like beer so there was definitely a period where it's like oh I know how I make myself like eternally lovable and unleavable I just with every sex act also need to include like a keg of beer (laughs) or like (laughs) whipped cream or you know a big mac (laughs) that's how simple men are you just have to you know get the triumvirate together sex food booze and 
my experience it's just like they don't necessarily all make for comfortable bedfellows <laughs> oh dolly i could talk to you for hours and weeks and days about sexy times no i've loved this conversation been so interesting i could talk about shagging with you for hours <laughs> and just to make it clear i know i've already said it but i really really loved insatiable i found it funny and very horny well i, I cannot ask for a lovelier quote than that thank you so much Thank you so much for listening. I was really moved by Dolly's wisdom, courage and honesty. I think she navigates the line between the personal and the intimate so well. And I loved what she had to say about the emotional complexity of sex and how so much of our learning lies in embracing our feelings in the moment rather than trying to be good in bed. Thank you so much for listening to the very first episode of Daisy is Insatiable. The podcast is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast with special thanks to Sphere. My novel, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls, is published by Sphere and out now. It's available in hardback from all online bookshops, including Waterstones, Blackwells and Foils, as well as Amazon, where you can find the e-book and the audiobook read by Charlie Clive. I leave you with this from Anay Nan's Delta of Venus. Only the united beat of sex and heart together can create ecstasy. Next time, we'll be going even further in our journey. I can't wait to see what gets revealed. I'll see you next week on Daisy is Insatiable. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.